If you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. I'm going to do something that I rarely do today. I'm going to preach from just one primary verse in the Word of God. We'll look at a few others, but uh, the text for this morning, the message is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. Years ago, there was a missionary in China by the name of Jeffrey T. Bull. And when the communists took over in 1949, he was soon thereafter arrested and he was sent to live in a concentration camp in Tibet in the freezing cold of winter. And as a prisoner there, he was given very little to eat. He was given very little to keep himself warm. He had many jobs to perform. One of his jobs was to clean the barn and feed the horses at night. And one night as he was uh, performing his chores, he began to feel very, very sorry for himself. The barn was almost completely dark. It was freezing. His boots squished in the manure. The smells were nauseating. And suddenly it dawned on him what day it was. After he'd been a prisoner for a while, the days had begun to run together, but he remembered the date when he had been arrested, and he had been counting how many days he had been incarcerated. And so there in that stable, as he did all of the math in his mind, he added the numbers together, and suddenly it dawned upon him that it was Christmas Eve. And all of a sudden, that barn took on a whole new meaning. This is what he would later say. To think that my Savior was born in a place like this. To think that he came all the way to heaven to some wretched stable. And to think that he came for me. He said that when he was finished with his chores, he went back still a prisoner, but he bowed in thankfulness and in worship. And if we could begin to understand the glory that Jesus left behind at Christmas, if we could begin to understand the conditions that Jesus accepted when he was born then we too would bow ourselves in thanksgiving and worship. In our passage this morning, it's as if the Apostle Paul is trying to help us to do just that. Now, this is not considered a Christmas passage. But in this ninth verse that we're going to read in a moment, Paul makes a statement about the birth of Jesus. Now, the context is actually stewardship. Paul has been collecting a love offering for the needy in Jerusalem, and he has been encouraging the Corinthians to participate in that love offering. In the first eight verses of this chapter, he is exhorting them to follow the example of the Macedonians. He says, look at them. They are poor, yet look at how generously they have given. But then when he gets to verse 9, he gives them an even better example. He says, maybe you are not familiar with the generosity of the Macedonians, 
but you know the generosity of Christ. And when Paul wanted them to give and give generously, he didn't use guilt. He didn't use some kind of gimmick. He just pointed them to Jesus. And this verse that we're going to read is kind of like a parenthesis. But in this statement, Paul talks about what happened when Jesus was born. There's one sense in which we can read this verse and understand what it's saying immediately. There's another sense when we read this verse that we're going to need all of eternity to get to the bottom of it. But since we're going to spend most of our time focusing on this one verse, let's just read it out loud together. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, say it with me. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. There are three things about the birth of Jesus that we can see in this ninth verse. I want you to notice, first of all, the wealth he possessed. The wealth that Jesus possessed. Paul said, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. Now, notice that word grace. We know that grace means the unmerited favor of God. What Paul is describing in verse 9, what Jesus did that first Christmas, this is something we could never earn or deserve. It's just grace. But Paul calls it the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ because he wants them to remember that before Jesus was born, even then, for all of eternity past, he was Lord. He calls Jesus Lord in order to emphasize that he possessed everything that the Lord possesses. For example, listen to this, Deuteronomy 10, 14. The heavens, indeed the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. All of the wealth of the heavens and the earth combined, Moses said, it all belongs to the Lord. Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, it all belongs to him. Exodus 19, 5, God says, the earth, all the earth is mine. In Job 41, 11, God says, everything under heaven belongs to me. Do you realize that every single one of those statements apply to Jesus? And that's what Paul means when he says in verse 9, though he was rich, Every single thing and every person on earth belonged to Jesus before he was born. Jesus could point for all of eternity past, from the moment of creation forward, he could point to every galaxy, he could point to every star, he could point to every planet, he could point to every moon, he could point to every person, he could point to every mountain and every valley and every tree and every flower and every animal, and Jesus could say, that's mine, that is mine, that is mine. Indeed, it was all his. I love the way Psalm 50 verse 12 puts it. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all its fullness. 
You realize before that first Christmas, it was inconceivable that Jesus could have need of anything. You ever have that problem at Christmas time where you're trying to buy for the person who seems to have it all? You ever have that problem? Trying to find what gift to buy someone who has everything? Isn't that fun? At the first Christmas, only Jesus had everything. Jesus was rich simply in the glory that he possessed in himself. Before he was born in a manger, he was a king with a throne. Before he was born, he was already king of kings and lord of lords. Before he was born, he received worship. Before he was born, legions of angels waited to obey his every command. Before he was born, he was clothed in splendor and glory. Last week we saw in Isaiah chapter 9 that even before he was born, he was wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. In John 8, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. He claimed to be the I am. He was pre-existent and self-sufficient. Before Jesus was born, the Bible says that everything that exists existed for his pleasure. Colossians 1.16 says, all things have been created through him and for him. It was all and it is all for Jesus. Now, if you're still struggling in spite of all of that to imagine just how rich Jesus was, just ask yourself this. How can you even begin to measure the worth of his attributes? Before he was born, he was omnipotent. In other words, he could do all things. How much is that worth? Before he was born, he was omniscient, knowing all things. What's the value of omniscience? Before he was born, he was omnipresent. He could be anywhere. What is that worth? We need to pause and remember this Christmas just how much Jesus gave up when he came from heaven to earth. When we realize the wealth that Jesus possessed, that he was willing to set aside, we, we realize there is never a time in our lives when we're going to outgive God. There's never a time in our lives where we make some sacrifice that he is not worthy of. There's never a time where we could uh, sing too much or pray too much or serve too much or do too much. We sing that song every now and then. Love so amazing, so divine demands my life, my soul, my all. This kind of gift means he deserves everything. He's worthy of everything we have and everything we are because of the wealth that he possessed and he gave up for you and for me when he was born that first Christmas. We see in this verse the wealth he possessed, but then the other side of that coin, we also see the poverty he embraced. The poverty he embraced. Notice the next part of verse 9. Yet for your sakes, he became poor. Now, that verb, he became poor, it is in the aorist tense, which simply means that Paul is talking about something that happened at a single point in time. He's referring to that doctrine we talked about last Sunday, the incarnation. 
That moment when Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, in that moment, Jesus embraced poverty. He who was rich became poor. You know, these days in this world in which we live, everybody's trying to climb the ladder, right? Everybody is working and striving for that next promotion, for that next raise, trying to go as high up as they can. But Jesus did the opposite. He could not go up because he was already on top. So at Christmas, what did Jesus do? He lowered himself and was willing to come down to us. Now, there are numerous ways in which the Bible tells us that Jesus became poor when he was born. And I want to mention just a few of the ways Jesus did this. First, he laid aside heaven's glory. He became poor in that he laid aside heaven's glory. Do you realize that Jesus shared his Father's glory before the world was even created? In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying and he says this, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Notice, the glory I had before the world was. You realize this glory that Jesus is describing, the glory that he possessed is the same glory that Isaiah saw in chapter 6 when he was given just a glimpse of the, at the throne and there he fell on his face as though he were dead. John chapter 12, John says that it was the glory of Jesus that Isaiah saw in that moment. He didn't lay aside his divinity, but he laid aside his glory when he was born. He laid aside his glory and he gave up the use of his attributes. He gave up the use of his attributes. For example, he did not stop being omnipotent, but he gave up the use of his omnipotence. The God who was almighty became weak and vulnerable. Sometimes he got tired. He didn't stop being omniscient, but he gave up the use of his omniscience. And so the God who knew everything suddenly had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to talk. Even though he was without sin, the Bible says in Hebrews 5, 8, that he had to learn obedience. The God who was self-sufficient became dependent on a mother's milk. The God who needed nothing became hungry, became thirsty. The God who was holy came down and he was tempted, just like us. He laid aside his glory. He, he gave up the use of his attributes. Something else he did, another way in which he became poor, he surrendered his rights. He became poor in that he surrendered his rights as God, Jesus, had the right to everything. And yet he made a choice to give up those rights. Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. He made himself of no reputation, notice this, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Notice Jesus came 
as a bond servant, that Greek word is doulos, which commonly is translated slave. Jesus, Paul said, accepted the role of a slave when he became man. A slave doesn't have any rights. Jesus had the right to comfort, but he endured pain and suffering. He had the right to wealth, but he became poor. He had the right to be served, but instead he served others. He had the right to make his own decisions, but he obeyed his parents. He obeyed the will of his heavenly Father. Every right that Jesus had, he surrendered at Christmas. And because Jesus was willing to surrender his rights, that is why for us the Christian life is not about us claiming our rights and standing for our rights. Now, that's how the world operates around us. For us, the Christian life is not about claiming our rights. It is about following the example of Jesus and being willing to lay down our rights for the benefit of those around us. It's about God having the right to govern every area of our lives. Jesus surrendered his rights. Something else he did when he became poor, he accepted rejection and humiliation. He accepted rejection and humiliation. Hebrews 2.7 says that as man, like man, he was made lower than the angels. He accepted the humiliation of being born in an animal stall. And let me tell you, as the father of four children, I cannot imagine any of my children being born under such conditions. I've never met a parent who would accept that for their children. The smell of dung and urine filled the air. He came and he was rejected. John 1 says he came into his own, but his own received him not. He deserved praise, but he was ridiculed. He was called every name in the book. He was falsely accused. He accepted rejection and humiliation, but then something else Jesus did. He became poor in that he experienced basic needs. Isn't it ironic that we commonly celebrate Christmas by giving and receiving gifts because at the first Christmas Jesus accepted a life of abject poverty you realize that when Jesus was dedicated and Mary made the customary sacrifice at his dedication the sacrifice she offered was the sacrifice of the poor do you realize to pay taxes Jesus had to get a coin from the mouth of a fish. As a carpenter's son, he never experienced anything resembling luxury. In Luke chapter 9, he said the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus lived on this earth, and when he died, he died without a single earthly possession. When he was crucified, even his clothes were taken away from him as the soldiers gambled for them at the foot of the cross. From his birth to his death, his life, all of his life was characterized by poverty. Think about it this way. He was conceived in a borrowed womb, and then he was placed in a borrowed manger. 
He died and he was placed in a borrowed grave. Do you realize at Passover, he had to borrow the upper room. He rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He had to borrow the boy's lunch to feed the 5,000. Jesus knew all about poverty. Now, I don't know what kind of needs some of you may have this morning. Maybe you are here today and there's some real serious physical needs in your life and you are desperately praying and depending upon the Lord, waiting to see how he is going to meet those needs. And if that is you, I can tell you with all of the authority of the word of God, Jesus knows, Jesus understands he's been there because even though he was rich, For your sakes, he became poor. Cairo, Egypt, one of the largest cities in Africa, there are 10 million people who live in Cairo. And within the city of Cairo, there is a community that is called Manshiat Nasser. Manshiat Nasser is part of Cairo, but it is kind of like a city all to itself. There are 262,000 people that live in Manshiat Nasser. It is, interestingly, 90% Christian. They even have a church that meets in an open-air sanctuary with about 15,000 people. But Manshiat Nasser has a nickname. Most people, when they are referring to this community, they don't call it by its actual name. They don't call it Manshiat Nasser. Most of the time, they just call it Garbage City. And do you know why Manshiat Nasser is referred to as Garbage City? Not just because there's a lot of garbage there, but it is an entire section of Cairo where everyone lives off of the city's garbage. Every day, the garbage of Cairo is collected and it is brought to this place and there in Manshiat Nasser, in Garbage City, the people, including the children, rummage through it, looking for things that they can consume, looking for things that they can use, looking for things that they can fix, looking for things that they can sell. The entire economy of Manshiat Nasser is based on the garbage of the city of Cairo. And do you realize many people are born in garbage city? They live their whole lives in garbage city. They die in garbage city. And garbage city is the only thing they ever know. Can you imagine that? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold on to these images. And I want you to hold on to that thought for just a moment. Because in just a moment, we're going to return to Garbage City. But I want you to imagine now a different place. I want you just to imagine with me the largest mansion in the world. The Istana New Rule Iman Palace in Bruni. It has 1,788 rooms, 257 
bathrooms. It has golden domes, vaulted roofs. It has an air-conditioned stable for 200 ponies. This home has five swimming pools, and it has a garage for 110 cars. Now, how many of you would like to live there? I wouldn't mind as long as I didn't have to clean it. But I want you to imagine with me the man who lives in that house. In fact, he doesn't just live there. Imagine the man who owns that house. And one day, after years of living in this home, he decides that it's time to move. He decides that he wants to go somewhere else. He decides he wants to experience something different. Now, just try to imagine that the man who lives in this home, the man who owns this home, decides to leave this home in order to live here in garbage city can you even imagine such a thing you're thinking pastor no man who lives in such a palace no man who enjoys such luxury would ever make a move like that and you know what you're right and yet I tell you this because the man who owns that palace, the man who gives up the Istana Palace in order to live in Garbage City, that man has not descended. He has not lowered himself near as much as Jesus did. When he left heaven's glory to be born in a manger and to live in this garbage dump called earth. You say, Pastor, this, this world, this is not a, a garbage dump. Compared to heaven, absolutely it is. And again, we go back to the beginning of verse 9. The only way to describe this is grace. It was by God's grace. It is because he loved you. Paul said that Jesus did this. Nobody forced him to do it. We didn't deserve it, but he did it anyway. Though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor. He embraced poverty. Now this leads us to the main point. This is where all this is going. This is the most important part. We see also in this verse the gift he offers. The gift he offers. Why would Jesus, who was so rich, be willing to embrace such poverty? The end of verse 9, that you through his poverty might become rich. This is the gospel in a nutshell. It really is. Jesus came from heaven to earth. He took on himself what we deserve so that we could experience, so that we could enjoy what he deserves. His poverty and everything that entailed and everything that he suffered, his poverty was in exchange for 
our riches. And this is the gift that he's offering to every man, boy, uh, man, woman, boy, and girl. If you're here this morning and you've never been saved, he's offering this gift to you. He's offering to you salvation and eternal life through the sacrifice that he made, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. He's offering it to everyone who is willing to receive him by confessing him as Lord. Now, there is one thing I need to tell you about verse 9. Uh, please understand what Paul did not mean when he said that Jesus became poor so that you might become rich. He is not saying that faithful Christians should expect material riches in the here and now. He is not saying that faithfulness is going to result in wealth. Unfortunately, this verse happens to be the favorite verse of every prosperity gospel preacher, which, by the way, is no gospel at all. But they will quote this verse and say, if you just have enough faith, if you just live right, why, you'll be rich. Your bank account will flourish and you will be worldly rich right here and right now. Now, folks, that is not what Paul is saying. And we know that's not what Paul is saying because all we have to do is read the first eight verses of the chapter. If Paul were saying that faithfulness automatically results in earthly wealth, that would have contradicted everything he said in verses 1 through 8. He lifted up the example of the Macedonians as a positive example, but he also told them the Macedonians were poor. In fact, he called it deep poverty. Out of their deep poverty, they gave. The Macedonians were extremely poor. If the prosperity gospel preachers are right, the Macedonians would not be a positive example for us to follow. They would be a negative example for us to avoid. No, that's not what Paul is saying. Nothing wrong with having prosperity if a believer is in God's will and if they're seeking first the kingdom of God. Amen. Use it for God's kingdom work. But what Paul is describing in verse 9, the kind of riches he is saying that we have through Christ, in Christ, this is something that money could never buy. For example, he says in Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every, what kind of blessing? Every spiritual blessing in earthly places, in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul said, this is our wealth. These are our riches. He's talking about our spiritual blessings, the blessings of salvation. He's talking about love and joy and peace and assurance and victory. Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 4, we have an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you. An earthly inheritance is corruptible. It is defiled. Eventually, it does fade away, but not our inheritance. 
Jesus said in Matthew 6 that we have treasures in heaven where the moths and the rust do not corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal. Our riches include this place that Jesus is preparing for us, a place where the streets are made of gold and the walls are made of jasper and the gates are made of pearl and the foundations are made of precious stones. But most of all, when Paul says that we become rich, we become rich simply by knowing Jesus. Simply by having Jesus. There's an ancient Persian parable about a king who lived in a palace. Maybe it was a palace just like the one we saw a moment ago. And the king who lived in this palace, he enjoyed all of the benefits of palace life. But he was also concerned for his people. And many times the parable said this king would put on a commoner's clothing and he would go out to mingle with the lowliest of people. In that city, there was a bathhouse and there was a man whose job was to maintain the fire outside of it. And one day the king was there dressed in the pauper's clothing and he saw that man tending the fire. He was literally sitting on a pile of ashes. And so the king sat down beside him and began to talk to him. And this man, not even realizing who he was talking to, he began to share his lunch with him and there together they ate bread and they drank water. And the king would return from time to time and after a while a friendship was formed. But eventually the king decided he could not contain his identity any longer. He said, I must tell this man who I really am. And so one day the king came and he revealed himself to the commoner in all of his splendor and he offered to give to that man anything his heart desired. He said, I can make you rich. He said, I can elevate you to nobility. I can even make you the ruler of a city. After thinking about it for a while, here's what the man said. By leaving your palace and sitting with me, by sharing my bread and listening to my troubles, you've already given me the greatest gift of all. You have given rich gifts to others, he said, but to me, you have given yourself. I only ask that you never take your friendship away from me. Jesus makes us rich in that he offers us himself. 2,000 years ago, Jesus exchanged all of his riches for our poverty so that we could be rich and all of the riches he offers to us are found in himself. Listen, to know Jesus is to be rich. I don't care what your bank statement says. To know Jesus is to be rich and to not know him is to be poor. And Jesus came at Christmas so that we could be rich in him. I bet many of you, if not most of you, in the next week, you're going to receive gifts. You are going to give gifts to others. And when someone offers you a gift, you're probably not going to turn down a single one. I beg you, I implore you this Christmas, don't reject, don't turn down the gift that God is offering to you 
in Jesus Christ, the greatest gift of all. Would you join me as we pray right now? Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this gift that you have given to us, that you offer to every man, woman, boy, and girl. The gift simply of knowing you through Jesus Christ. The gift of knowing you and having you in our lives. The gift of knowing that we will spend eternity with you in your presence, enjoying your presence forever. And Father, it is our heart's desire that every person here would receive this gift by placing their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. So, Father, if there are some, and we think certainly there must be uh, in a congregation of this size and those that are listening online, those who are here today who've never taken that step of faith, God, we pray that for them this really would be their day of salvation. That they would experience that poverty of spirit when they acknowledge that they are sinners and that we are not worthy, that we have blown it, we've broken your law, and we cannot save ourselves that they would realize that Jesus came from heaven to earth at that first Christmas in order to take our place, to take the test for us, to live the life that we could not have lived on our own, that we should have, but we could not because we've blown it. To die the death we should have died, to take the punishment we should have received. God, how I pray that this would be that day they acknowledge that and place their faith in Jesus as Lord. And Father, I pray for those who are here today who know Christ but that we would take these lessons that we've learned, what Jesus did that first Christmas, and that we would apply all of this to our lives and the way we live and the way we treat others, that we too would be willing to put aside any thought of glory for ourselves, that we too would be willing to be rejected if necessary for the sake of Christ, that we too would be willing to uh, surrender our rights in order to follow Christ, that we would follow that example that Jesus set for us that first Christmas. So help us, Lord, not just to be hearers, but to be doers of your word as well. And show us, God, all of us, how we need to respond to your word and what you've spoken to us today. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. With the head still bowed and eyes still closed just for a moment, the Bible says in Romans 6.23, the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. We all understand when someone offers you a gift, you have two options. You can accept it or you can reject it. Anybody here today that would say, I need to accept this gift by surrendering my life to Christ. I want to receive him, place my faith in him. I understand that he came, he was born, he lived for me, he died for me, he rose again. And I want to follow him as Lord of my life. And I want to accept this gift that God is offering. Anybody here today that just by raising a hand that would say, that's my decision, that's the step I'm taking right now, that I will follow Christ. Anybody here just by raising a hand would say, Pastor, that's me, praise the Lord. Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else?